Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. Um, today, we are going to discuss the Declaration on the Rights of Women by Alamp de Gouges. It's going to be discussed by Bronwyn Winter and me, Joe Brew, and it's Sunday, the 17th of July, 2022. So um, welcome to everybody and welcome especially to Bronwyn Winter, who is an expert on um, Olympe de Gouges and French feminist literature and feminist French literature. So um, Bronwyn Winter is Professor of Transnational Studies, the Department of European Studies, School of Languages and Culture at the University of Sydney. Um, she's uh, I think a radical feminist, radical feminist, and will give us some fantastic insights into a lamp de gouge. So um, let's get started with Bronwyn. Would you be able to give us an introduction to Olympe de Gouge and her um, work, The Rights of Women, 1791, and tell us why it we why we thought it would be good for radical feminist perspectives? Well, um, for any woman at that time to dare to say that women were equal to men and had rights was a pretty radical proposition. And she did end up getting, as we say in French slang, shortened for it, as in guillotine, she lost her head. Um, the the um, pretext was that she opposed the um, killing of the royalty. But uh, I think the real reason was that she was a real feminist rabble rouser. She was also anti-slavery um, and slavery was abolished in France in 1794 by the Convention, but it was reintroduced by Napoleon in 1802, not to be abolished again until 1848. And she was along with Condorcet and a couple of other people, one of the most outspoken anti-slavery activists at that time. And she pamphleteered a lot about women's rights. And she was pretty in your face about that too, even at her trial. she remained pretty in your face about the sort of um, ways in which people would decide on the sort of regime they wanted and the sort of whether they could vote for a constitutional monarchy or a republic and so on. And she said that that should be a vote by the people and the um, those who had seized the power should not be deciding for them. So she was, she was very much an anarchist in the true sense of the word, as in, you know, a participatory democracy, if you will. She uh, hung out with also a bunch of feminists. She was part of a women's club, um, co-founded by Ede van Valdez, who was a, um, a Dutch-born woman who worked in France, lived in Paris. And, and she was also, another thing that did not work in her favor was that she was a little provincial. And um, anyone who knows anything about France knows that it's a very centripetal pace and even was then. Um, Louis XIV really sort of centralized um, the French regime um, quite significantly in the 17th century. And it's actually been very Paris-centric. So where you have may have different regions in other parts of the world, in France you have Paris and Provence. Yeah? So if you come from the Provence, you already have an uphill battle to be recognized in Parisian society and, and in, in um, the sort of institutions of the, of the um, regime. Can so, I, so, so, so just, yeah. Yeah, if I, if I just uh, take us back to, because I think uh, uh, quite a lot of women don't know much about even the French Revolution or the rights of man. And I think it, perhaps if we, if we explain what it was she was writing against or what she, is that possible if we could explain that in a bit absolutely yeah yeah, uh, sure. yeah her, go on. Her, declaration, her declaration was actually calped on the declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen which is as you would know along with the the u.s bill of rights is the, one of the foundational documents of our human rights understandings today yeah, um, probably the French Declaration even more so than, than the US one, even though the US one is chrono chronologically before the French one. Um, but this idea that humans, by virtue of being human, have inalienable, right, inalienable rights, that is, they can't be taken away because by virtue of being human, we have them. Uh, that's a, that was a really radical idea for anyone um, in, the, in, the, in, the, um, in the 18th century. 
Um, and it was particularly radical to say that women had rights. So in terms of the French Revolution, you know, how long have you got? I, mean, I can't talk about that for very long, but the French Revolution was, it essentially became a bourgeois revolution because you had the nobility and the clergy, you had three estates that used to meet and in, in, in deliberate about the affairs of state. You had the nobility, you had the clergy, you had, had the Tiazita, the third estate, which was practically everybody else, yeah? So you had the third estate, which was, you know, your rising bourgeoisie, was your professional classes and so on, which got a bit pissed off with the nobility and the clergy and the ancien regime, the old regime of basically um, church and, and, and the crown ruling France. And France was very deeply Catholic, yes? And it, it was a very Gallican Catholicism. So the, the crown and the religion were very much associated. So we had a revolt against that by the mercantilist class who wanted a bit of breathing room mercantilist being sort of precursors to capitalism, right? So and there was also a popular revolt. Of course, there was also a popular revolt. People were starving, people didn't have bread. We have the famous line, let the meat cake, um, apocryphally attributed to um, Marie Antoinette. But we did have women storming um, the palace saying, you know, we haven't got enough to eat and so on. So there were, there were real problems of poverty and exclusion in France. But the actors of the revolution, of course, were the bourgeois men and the intellectual classes of men. It was an incredible, it was a watershed, it was an extraordinary moment in um, French history and indeed in European history, it sent waves throughout Europe and we have sort of revolutionary moments like that. We have the European spring of 1848 where we have similar sorts of movements happening throughout Europe. So the French Revolution was a big, big, big deal. Today, the way it is remembered as a foundational, um, as the foundation of the Republic or as the, you know, the, the Republic before the Republic, but basically it's, it's, it's become idealized. So liberté, égalité, fraternité, liberty, equality, fraternity, which, is, um, which was the slogan of the revolutionaries is now the slogan of the Republic and is really much associated with the state. So if you go, want to go and be revolutionary in France, you don't say these days liberté, égalité, fraternité because it's become the apparatus of state. Yeah? So it really is very much, so there's this whole idealization of the revolution today. Yeah. So at and, the, time, I mean, the revolution, was not, it was not one thing. It was lots of things, yeah? And yeah. Olympe de Gouges, women revolutionaries, were sort of part of all of that, but also fighting against the male revolutionaries who were not giving them a voice at the table. Yeah, so what, what the way um, I think it's very re relevant to us radical feminists today is that Olympe de Gouges was very involved and really knew what was going on. She was in Paris, she was an intellectual, she was a playwright, and she was a feminist and she was at the clubs. They had salons and they had quite a, a lot of the salons where people, revolutionaries, thinkers, uh, who were developing the ideas of the enlightenment, which were to do with rationality. So they were rejecting the ancien regime, which is the old order, which was the, the church, the, the aristocracy and then everybody else. So there were three estates and it was either you were yes. part of the aristocracy, you were the church or you were everyone else. And this whole sort of century- And of the revolution, revolution came from everyone else. Yeah. And so Rousseau was one of the most important uh, uh, writers thinking, uh, but many of them, they were coming up with these new ideas based on rationality. And what, uh, Olympe de Gouges did uh, is said, right, we are able to be rational. We are rational. She was really annoyed with Rousseau, who said that females, women were not rational beings because of our biology. And she said, That's Oh, yes, in, in yeah. his book on. Yeah, yeah. In in the uh, social contract, it's, it's a, a, a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers, writers said, uh, we're going to use rationality and logic to overthrow the aristocracy and challenge the church, the importance of God. We're going to use nature because nature is sort of science. And we're going to say that, that, that there are natural laws, but we're going to say that we, the men and citizens and that, you know, they did this pseudo generic thing of saying all men are equal. And sometimes they pretend that meant us they could represent us women, but then we were not allowed to represent ourselves or men. We were not allowed to participate in the 
uh, being part of the fraternity, the brotherhood. So she was really livid about this in a wonderful way. And yeah, so I think that's that's why it's great for, well, she's so important for radical feminists is she's using all those ideas of rationality and using their own logic or the logic of the, the revolution Absolutely. to say, Absolutely. this is ridiculous. You need to extend it to women as well. Absolutely. And it's a really important. I'm glad you talk about nature because um, Colette Guillaume, who we might be talking about in a couple of months, actually had a, a whole lot of arguments about how nature was used to keep women down. And the French revolutionaries were very expert about that because it wasn't it wasn't all men either. It was propertied men. So if you didn't have property or you were a slave, you didn't have rights. So it was women, men without property, slaves and indeed children who didn't have rights. Yeah. So, um, and the discourse of nature was used to justify that absence of rights for those classes of people. Yeah. And women particularly were the model for denial of rights to other, other classes of inferiorized men. Yeah. yeah. Because and one thing that's... Not to be rational, not to be logical and so on. Well, Lampe Goose, you know, sort of, as you, as you said, completely turned that back on them. And the Declaration of the Rights of Women is quite ironic and very, very clever because she counts it on the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And maybe I can cite a couple of passages to, 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 yeah, to demonstrate that. Because the, the Declaration of the Rights of Man says that, um, I'm gonna just shine my light, which is gonna make me look a little bit like a ghost because otherwise I can't see my paper. Um, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, for example, say that, you know, men are born and remain equal in right. And, and she says, well, women are born and remain equal to men in rights. And she said, considering, and, and this is also from the preamble to the, the men's declaration, but she rephrases it for women, considering that ignorance and uh, being forgotten and the contempt in which women's rights are held are the only causes of public misery and of corruption of governments, we have resolved to expose in a solemn declaration the natural and inalienable and sacred rights of women. So she's really sort of, you know, put it up the, the revolutionary saying, well, I'm going to use your language against you. And she does yeah. that throughout and the I, I just want to add in here. So in Article 4 of her declaration on the rights of women and the female citizen, she says this, liberty and justice consist of restoring all that belongs to others. And then she says this, thus, the only limits on the exercise of natural rights of women are perpetual male tyranny. These yes. limits are to be reformed by the laws of nature and reason. So she's that's she's she very specifically says it is male oppression, male tyranny that is oppressing. And she uses the word oppression. Words, their she uses their words from their declaration saying, well, yours, you say you're oppressed, but guess what? You're oppressing us. And she's using exactly their language. And she says a nice so thing. There's so, so much. If you're interested in this, just just Google it. There's like loads of stuff in English and in French on Olympe de Gouche. But I was listening to something. Um, I think it was a BBC Sounds podcast. And one of the experts said what Olympe de Gouche did is she she said, you're all Louis the 16th to us. So she basically said the male revolutionaries were annoyed with the aristocracy and the king for his tyranny and oppression. And then what she did is said, which is the person that's political, that the, what men are doing to us is what the, the state does to men. And so she said this nice thing, you're all Louis the 16th to us, which is like, is what she was saying. You're all just oppressors, ty tyrants. And, and another very radical thing she did, she used freedom of expression in her declaration to say, freedom of women's expression is also to name the father of our children, so he has to take responsibility for them. And we're still fighting that, right? We're still there. We, you know, men are not providing for children, you know, the, um, you know when, 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 when heterosexual couples separate, the men aren't paying for the kids' upbringing and so on and so forth. So she says, we have the right to name the fathers of our children and make them take responsibility, and that's our freedom of expression. And yeah. she also says that women sharing in government, sharing in responsibility, sharing in post, because we can go to the scaffold and get beheaded. So we should also be able to go to the public place, express ourselves and hold positions of office. Because, you know, if we can get killed, well, we should be able to do all these other things as well. 
Yeah, and I'll read this so you you get some of her words, although translated. She, in Article 6 of the Declaration of the Rights of Women, um, she says, the law must be the expression of the general will. All female and male citizens must contribute either personally or through their representatives to its formation. It must be the same for all male and female citizens being equal in the eyes of the law must be equally admitted to all honours, positions and public employment according to their capacity and without other distinctions besides those of their virtues and talents. And then I'll just read this bit, the, the, the Article 10. It's, it's the sort of most famous thing I think that, that she's known for. She said, Article 10, no one is... Yeah, it's the, it's the mount the scaffold. No one is to be disquieted for his very basic opinions or her. Woman has the right to mount the scaffold. She must equally have the right to mount the rostrum. And that's the, the very famous point that we, we're allowed to be guillotined. They, they guillotine women. So we should we should be allowed to speak. And that's so relevant for us today that our speech is being shut down. Absolutely. And she also, in the postface to the declaration, which sometimes gets overlooked, but it's a really important text, because she calls on women to wake up. She says, woman, wake up. The, 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 the bell of reason is being heard throughout the universe. And she's talking about the reason, which also is about their rights. Yes. The, the, I, ho the yeah. men who are slaves have multiplied their strength, they've, they've, but they've also needed your strength to free themselves. So yeah. now he's become, now man has become unjust towards his female companion. So she goes on in that tone. She also says something very, 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 very important towards the end of that post phase. In history, in the Ancien Regime, women did more harm than good because they became the occult rulers. So they became, they, they, what, what, what the force of men denied them, they resorted to through ruse because it's a little bit, a little bit like what, what Sarah Hoagland wrote about in Lesbian Ethics to make a, what may seem like a strange connection, but Hoagland wrote that we learn to manipulate, we learn to do passive aggressive things because we denied power, denied a voice as women. And so that's the sort of behaviors we start to adopt and we have to stop adopting those behaviors towards each other. And Olam de Gouge said something quite similar a couple of hundred years earlier that women have been resorted to, resorting to this subterfuge and to these quite devious and quite nasty ways of gaining power through men or through you know, competing with other women. And that has been quite harmful. It's been quite harmful for people. Yeah. But, but I think, I mean, I think the way she writes it is very nice because she says that because women are denied the right to speak in public and to make laws and to participate and be taken seriously, they have, they, they, because we are rational, we will find a way. That's the, and, and she's defending, she's saying it's not our fault. It's not women's fault that we have, got a bad reputation for being manipulative it, you know in 1790 and i thought that was it was really nice and then she she was saying come on let's just go for it let's get power and she articulates yeah. as if we have power then we we won't have that characteristic that people uh, assign to us of being manipulative because then we can do politics naturally you know we can just get on and do it um this is there's two things I want to sort of go back to, but one of them is that um, the she did a lot. She she was a playwright, and well, let's go on to the playwright. She wrote uh, a very the, apparently the first publicly performed anti-slavery play that was um, uh, performed by La Comédie Française, the the French um, uh, sort of theatre. And at that stage in the Ancien Regime, in the old regime, you had to be sort of allowed to do it. So she, it was quite an achievement to know enough people, to have enough contacts, to be able to get this play up. And it was called uh, yeah, Zamor et Myanmar. Um, it's about two slaves, black slaves, who were on a a Caribbean island, and it's about uh, the injustice, injustice of of being slaves and being oppressed. 
and it only played three times and then it got shut down by the slave owners it's thought or and also some of the actors didn't want to do it anymore but um it did exist and it's it really is important to us because in academia and in the story told about radical feminism and about feminism is that white middle class or aristocratic women were asking for the same privileges as aristocratic men to and they were oblivious to other forms of oppression that's the story told over and over again about feminism is that we, you know, you can write us off because, and you can write people like Mary Wollstonecraft off and uh, the history. And I think that's one reason why they don't want her to be famous, Olympe de Gouges, because she was so obviously massively progressive and anti, anti-slavery before almost anybody else was. Incredibly important uh, thinker, I think, or writer. She also, uh, and some of her plays also addressed issues of poverty and unjust taxation and punishment of the poor for being poor. So she really was um, quite a protester um, for the rights of all and those who was those who were marginalised socioeconomically, but also slaves. And her anti-slavery play, and she also did a um, she did a. Um, a rewrite of a Beaumarchais play, which um, I, I forget the details now, but um, it, it also turned things around in terms of women's rights and Beaumarchais was absolutely not amused. Beaumarchais was a very, very famous playwright of the time. He wrote The Marriage of Figaro, which later became adapted as an opera, and The Barber of Seville, which later became adapted as an opera, but those originally came from Beaumarchais plays. So he was a very celebrated playwright. I should also say to get performed at the Comédie Française, was a really big deal and it is a big deal now. Comédie Française is sort of jobs for life. It's like tenure. When you're an actor with the Comédie Française, you are tenured. And sometimes if you go see a French film, you'll see with the participation of Watsumijik from La Comédie Française, because once you're in the Comédie Française, you have an acting job for life. It's really, you know, there, there are French institutions like that that are quite um, hierarchical. And La Comédie Française is really sort of this, um, theatre institution in France, like we don't really have them anywhere else, yeah? Um, Royal Shakespeare Company may be possibly something equivalent, but it's not quite the same in terms of the, the, the regime. So to get into the Comédie Française and get in there as an actor and get in there to be performed, you really need to have connections. You need to have in French what we call piston, which means you need to know people, yeah? You need to have connections to get you in. And that's that, you know, she actually had a lot of trouble getting that play performed. It wasn't an easy thing. She didn't just waltz in and say, hey, I've got this great play. Why don't we all perform it? No, it was actually quite a struggle to get that play on. And it yeah. was shut and down she, after three she, Also, I mean, it's very interesting that before the French Revolution in the uh, 1780s um, and, and before that, in Paris, there were a lot of salons. So there was, I think there were nearly 60 or maybe around that number, like a large number of regular salons where... Uh, people went and discussed ideas of the French Revolution, but of the Enlightenment and just politics. And they were very often run by women and often rich women, so aristocratic women who would create this salon. And one reason why Alain de Gauche was successful uh, and able to get her ideas out and develop her ideas and write is that because they were run by women, they often invited women along and she had... She had some male patrons of sort of supporters who liked her, and she had a, a husband, well, a boyfriend, a partner, male partner. Not a husband. Yeah, she had a husband, husband who died, no. uh, and that was good. It, it turns out it was good that he died because once he died, she was a widow, and then that you were allowed to do a lot more. So she was lucky. Uh, in that you're talking about the first. You're talking about her actual husband. Yeah, the first. Because the guy actually kept her. She lived yeah. with um, a quite well-off man who was in the employee, employee of the royals, I think, and he kept her for about 20 years. So she actually had a pretty good life in Paris. She refused to marry him, but he, she was his lover for a long time. Her original husband was much older than her and very fortunately he gave, you know, she had a son by him, but very fortunately for her, he died of a fever after a couple of years. <laughs> and she was she was set free, so that was really good. And but then she lived in this just, I just want to go on about these salons that, um, it was fantastic that the women ran the salons and that they gave her patronage. So she had a lot of female friends and they had women's clubs as well. So they had 
uh, women's salons where you could go and she went and linked up with other women and the work and developed her ideas. And the French revolutionaries, after they'd executed her and as they developed the revolution, they shut down the women's clubs. So they stopped women going into those clubs. And I think reasonably shortly after that, they the men took over the running of the salons. So they set up, well, certainly in Britain, they said, when we can't be having women running these clubs, these salons that even women are allowed to sort of sit around and be the hosts of. We're going to have exclusively male clubs. I know that that happened in Britain, but I think that there was this window of opportunity when women were allowed. And just another point about her having a husband, she was also well this man who helped her she was also very very good looking and I think she was aware that that was helpful to her in getting access and I think we were sort of lucky that she got the, all that access we don't really know if it how much was due to her but apparently when she got to Paris it, from from the the west, the southwest, Occitan or wherever the 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 southwest, she just rose oh. immediately, uh, partly through her intellect, but quite a lot through because she, people wanted her around. Um, yeah, sure, and she also had, and I think just I just want to backtrack on the salons and things a little bit. She had a very very um, good friend. Um, she made friends with Madame de Montesson, who had sort of theater evenings, and that's how she got into acting, is out of the right plays. She had, she had this sort of sponsorship of these quite well-off women. Um, and I wanna make a distinction between salon and club. Because yeah. the salon, if you go back to the 17th century, most of the very, the literary and intellectual salons, I think pretty much most of them were run by women. Women were actually quite influential in the literary and philosophical sphere and, the, and quite well-known writers as well at that time, um, out of the 17th century, Madame de Sévigny and others. So. The, the tradition of women running salon goes back to the 17th century. The clubs were another thing. They were revolutionary. They were political. So the clubs were really about politics. They were about discussing political ideas. They were a little bit different from the salon, which were more literary philosophical. So I think we just need to make that distinction because the club was very important. And it was the, the clubs that were shut down, was and it? de Gouge belonged to a women's club, yeah, which was founded by Valdez. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of anti-slavery clubs as well. She was in that as well, yeah. 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 Um, she also and she wrote... was a pamphleteer. She was a pamphleteer, and that's very important because a lot of kids, we didn't have internet back then, yeah, we didn't have telephones, we didn't have gestetners, you know, the, the way people communicated ideas was through pamphleting, yeah. And she wrote a, a large number of pamphlets. She was a pamphleteer, and a lot of her ideas about slavery and about women's rights originally came out through pamphlets. So yeah. I think that, you know, and, and pamphleting was an extraordinarily important part of political exchange during the revolutionary period. And in the and one, the yeah, one, one thing is that she, um, to get published, she had to pay for um, a lot of this herself. And so she she found a way to, and she put pretty much all her money uh, into her political uh, sort of participation in the public space. And then as Bronwyn says, they they were sort of posters in, uh, and uh, they were posted up on the walls of Paris. And one of the really interesting things for us as well now is that most people were illiterate. So most people could not read. So what would happen is a group would go up and see, oh, there's a new pamphlet. And they would know that it wasn't from the state because the state pamphlets had to be in white. So she did her pamphlets on something like purple or pink and um, her famous, this the, some of the, the the famous one, Les Trois Heures, which we'll talk about in a sec. Well, we talked about at the beginning, the, the, the three ballot boxes, it was called Les Trois Heures, um, that uh, was, was pink. And so, but the interesting thing was somebody who could read would go up to it and read it out to everybody. So you can imagine she'd do her pamphleting, but she she had somebody to pay, paste it up for her. So she paid people to paste it. So she'd have a pamphleteer guy, probably, what well, person, who did the pamphleting. Then everybody would know that they were up and they'd go out into the streets and somebody would read it to maybe about 30 others who would listen to it and then they would discuss it. So the, the way that she writes is 
it, with the knowledge that it's going to be probably m many people will read it to their friends. And it's so similar. So somebody said in the chat, she's the Kelly J. Keene of the 18th century. <laughs> but yeah some of i mean but some of it some there are some similarities that the speaking at speaker's corner the the fact that it's the the spoken word not the written word and you can see that in her writing in you know she's talking directly to her audience and she's talking to us women she's she, she does sometimes say men uh, there's a bit where men are you capable this is in the, her thing men are you capable of being just it is a woman who poses the question. You will not deprive her of the of the of that right, at least. Tell me, what gives you, this is to men, the sovereign empire to oppress my sex? So she's speaking directly in some of her writing, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, getting back to the hidden from history thing, I think that's actually quite important that um, we know, Hidden from History is the title of a very famous book, as we know, by Sheila Robotham, but um, the feminist historians, um, women like Michel Perrault, Christine Barr, and a whole bunch of other women in France um, have done C.B. Chaperon. Many, many, many feminist historians have unearthed these stories and unearthed, and, and, and sort of um, Benoit Proult, I just was looking at her book today on Pauline Roland, and these feminists of the so-called second wave—I I say so-called because I think feminism's always been around. There are maybe highs and lows, but it's always been around. So thinking in terms of first wave and second wave is it's something that you know always bothers me a bit. But anyway, feminists of the so-called second wave and after resurrected these women from history and rediscovered them and 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 brought them back to the limelight, and that has been fundamentally important. And um, now, and in Paris, um, under a socialist um, local city government, um, a couple of decades ago now, there was this process of renaming streets and places. We now have a passerelle Simone de Beauvoir that crosses the Seine. We now have a Jardin Monique Wittigue as well, very, very, since very, very recently. And there is a, a place Olympe, Olympe de Gouges, and there's a square René Vivien, very famous lesbian um, as well, but there's a place Olympe de Gouges in the Marais area of Paris. And that was named during that period. There's also a theater of her name in Montauban. And there's also, I think, a street or a place named for her in, in the Parisian suburbs. So these are sort of, and most, if you look at the street names of Paris, they're practically all named for men. So this was really a, a, a way of officially recognizing women brought out of history. But it's thanks to the work of women historians that Olympe de Bourges now has a place in the canon in France. And there's yeah. even been talk sort of moving her names to the Pantheon and being pantheonized in France. This is you know, a place that's called the Pantheon after the, 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 the Roman Pantheon, but um, some is, this idea of when somebody's remains are moved to the Pantheon, that means you're a really, really, really famous person and you're really, really, really important. And I, so, I mean, I, th I, th I think that as I, I mean, what I've heard or read is that there was a great, a strong move to uh, put her in the Pantheon or the Pantheon. And um, it went to a vote and um, the people in France agreed she should be involved. And then Mitterrand, um, who was the president at the time, sort of blocked it, and um, and it did, and she didn't go. So it, it, there is still a resistance to accept her as part of the creation of the French Revolution of of that, and um, she is. It, it is sort of embarrassing. It's, it sort of looks really bad that instead of she you know she was very clear let's let's include women as full citizens and the the revolutionaries knew that and instead it of happened yeah, by the way in the 1944. yeah instead of saying yes yeah okay sure we are going to change the uh the declaration of the rights of man and make it explicit that we're including women they cut off her head and um so it's it's a sort of embarrassment and i think that even today well and today um, there are political forces that do want to cover her up again because they want to carry on the fraternity, the brotherhood that does not include women. And they won't mind sort of less radical women. Um, but the, I mean, she's just fundamental. And I think that, that, that they should, they, they really should uh, celebrate her more. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a real shame. 
Um, uh, Bronwyn, it's, it's occurred to me, is she one of the only explicitly feminist women who've been killed for, who've been killed by revolution, by the, you know, like who's written and been killed specifically? Um, as far as I'm aware, yes, but the, the, the women who were involved in the revolution sort of came to, they were either sort of ended up being marginal, died in poverty, very famously was sent off to a lunatic asylum. Um, so so the, the fate of women revolutionaries was not great. And if you look at the revolutionaries of the of the second of the period leading up to the Second Republic, they fared pretty badly too. Yeah, the women like putting Roland, like Jean de like and so on and so forth. So um, even though they may not have been beheaded, uh, there has been extraordinary resistance. And like I said, women did not become full citizens in France until 1944. Wow. Yeah. They did not get the vote until 1944. So that, you know, that's pretty telling. There were three women in government as secretaries of um, sort of junior ministries in government um, in the, the Front Populaire, the radical government of 36 through 39. Um, there were women named in government and a number of women ran for election in 1848 when the, the Second Republic was created even though they didn't have the right to vote and they didn't have the right to be elected, they made a political point by running for election. So um, there have been a lot of feisty women around who've been hidden from history. I think Olympe de Gouges is pretty hard to shut her up now because she's so much out there and she's become associated with the anti-slavery mood, her, her movement, her plays have been published, her declarations and pamphlets have been published and there's been a lot of research work done on her. So it's pretty hard to efface her. However, your point is quite a good one in that there is this, I talked about the mythology of the Republic before, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, which has now become part of the apparatus of state and not seen as particularly radical anymore. Um, the, there is this mythology around the French Revolution that the French Revolution opened the way to equality for all. Yeah? And so women ended up getting rights because of the French Revolution. And that is sort of partly true and sort of partly not. It's sort of like saying because of the civil rights movement or because of the anti-Vietnam War moratorium, we had a women's liberation movement. It's, you know, it's a similarly um, odd statement because yes, there are, there's a political opportunity that opens up in certain times in history, yes? And for Olympe de Gouges, there was a political opportunity and there were people she came into contact with. You don't, you know, nobody acts alone, yeah? So people, women and men that she came in contact with on off whose ideas she fed and who gave her inspiration. So of course, you know, things happen in a context, things don't happen in a void, but to say that the revolution gave women's rights when women did not get full citizenship until 1944, and there were still laws on the statute books in the 1960s saying married women had to get their husband's permission to go out and earn a living, even though that law had no longer been applied for some time. So, there, and we've had similar laws in Australia and Britain and so on that have you know, been defunct for a long time before they actually got removed. But so yeah. this idea that the revolution gave women rights is just a complete travesty of what actually happened. Women had oh, to fight yeah. for those rights and lost her head over it. I would recommend everybody to read this. It's Marie Olympe de Gouges, 1791, The Rights of Women, um, because it's unbelievable how, how complicated and how much she had worked out. Like a lot of what we are told uh, we only learnt or women only thought about or feminists only claimed uh, later in the second wave. She ha had done it all. She's done it all in that, that statement. And I'm just going to read another bit of it because it's very, it's very good. She, so this is the preamble to it. She says, this is the second paragraph. She says, I, man alone has raised his exceptional circumstances to a principle, bizarre, blind, bloated with science and degenerated in a century of enlightenment and wisdom uh, and has uh, wisdom into the crassest ignorance. He wants to command as a despot, a sex which is in full possession of its intellectual facilities. He pretends to enjoy the revolution and to claim his rights to equality in order to say nothing more about it. 
she's livid it's fantastic she's so angry and she's so scathing about, and and correct about his the 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 revolutionaries um lies about using uh science and enlightenment they're just they're just picking bits of it to get some more power for themselves and they're just completely oppressing going being a despot themselves which is and it's so great she articulated she sent this declaration uh, there were only five copies of it printed and it was sent to uh the assemblée nationale which is they had already constituted a uh, a national government of revolutionaries so she sent it to them and said look you're you're drawing up the rights of man um well, you this is you need to include this so it's a bit like a lobby document she sent it to them and i don't know who the four others but they it wasn't made public it wasn't posted around paris so we don't know somebody asked in the chat did mary wollstonecraft read this there is a possibility that she didn't but i think uh, my my understanding is she probably did uh, they they were she was I mean Mary Wollstonecraft was really into the French Revolution she went to Paris she was there I think it's highly likely she will have she will have known about it I think but there is a possibility she didn't so it is a question of whether Mary Wollstonecraft Craft um, just read this and and used all the ideas I think my guess is she did I don't know what do you think Bronwyn do you I think she have read this I don't, I don't think it really matters. Um, what I was saying before is that there are things that there are moments in history that, that that grab the imagination or the creativity or the revolutionary potential of people. Yeah, you know, it, it, during the period of enlightenment, you had a Scottish Enlightenment. You had Enlightenment ideas going all around Europe. You know, so you had also feminist ideas going all around Europe. Etta van der Des was Dutch. Mary Wollstonecraft was British. And whether or not she read um, Declaration of the Rights of Women. There was idea. There were ideas that were circulating at that time, you know, in which feminists participated. I have read feminists from the so-called second wave who've read very, very, who've written very similar things in very different contexts because there are these ideas that circulate and they become part of a global movement or that came at that time a European movement. But there was also a lot of transatlantic connections also between France and and what was happening in the U.S. at that time or what was to become the U.S. Um, well, and Jefferson. So I don't, I don't right. think it matters, but I wanted to actually address something I saw in the chat, if you don't mind. Do, do. Um, yeah. somebody, said, somebody said that wanting to participate in rationality is about liberal feminism, not radical feminism. I actually don't agree with that. I think that um, rationality has been given a bad rap. And if we look at, for example, just to step sideways, because some people have mentioned this in the chat as well, just step to step sideways into this gender identity bullshit. Um, it's irrational. It is completely irrational. And what feminists and what radical feminists and you know other gender critical people are actually trying to say is very rational. It's fact. It's scientific. It's you know it's observable reality about the way our society is structured, the way who is the oppressor, who is the oppressed, what biological reality is, and so on and so forth. It's totally rational. I'm not for giving up on rationality and I'm not for dismissing rationality because some aspects of enlightenment thinking were sexist and patriarchal. Of course they were. But you don't throw your baby out with the bathwater. You know, sometimes you want to keep the baby as well. And I think rationality is actually not something we want to get rid of. Yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree. And I think that she's what she does, which is a very much part of what we're doing now as radical feminists, is she uses logic and rationality and says that we're capable of thinking logically and making sensible decisions based on understanding of the world. But also she talks about the structures of oppression and uh, she talks about nature, at, but also uh, that our nature as women is real, it happens, but we also are capable of participating in the sort of social construction of, she doesn't use that term, but the construction of politics, of the public sphere. And um, so I think she's she's using all the elements that we as radical feminists use these days um, and, and talking about male uh, violence, uh, sort of the tyranny, the, the use of force to oppress women. So there's a lot, a lot that's really there. Um, can I 
sort of bring us back on bring us on to this three urns thing so um as bronwyn said at the beginning when they the revolutionaries decided to uh they did a trial and said that uh, Olympe de Gauche was counter-revolutionary and had to be executed at the guillotine. They did not explicitly say it was for her work on the rights of women. So they didn't say, we're going to kill you because you've spoken on women's rights. They said that she should be uh, guillotined because she was counter-revolutionary, because she had posted a, put up a poster asking sort of advocating that there should be a national referendum on the three types of uh republic the the way forward and that would either be a constitutional monarchy like well, <laughs> yeah is it is it either the, the to have a sort of uh, something a bit like Britain, which is you would have a, a democracy which had the real power, but you would still have the aristocracy or that you'd have the king. Or now, mm. what were the other things? Was it just or a full republic? Oh, yes. And it was a federation, a bit like the United States. So the federation... republic, a federal yeah. republic, constitutional monarchy. Those were the three options. She And she actually published it to look like a state pamphlet. And I think it was on orange paper, but, you know, I don't care whether it was orange or pink, but she made it look yeah. to look as if it was an official state pamphlet. And she authored it and she introduced the first person as Toxico Dandron from the land of the crazy. So toxic, to, toxic uh, Dandron, which sort of sounds a little bit like Young Turkey from the land of the crazy. So she, she made it as a sort of ridiculous author name. But then she said, she commented on the internal divisions in the Republic and said, lay down your arms and let's have a plebiscite, you know, let's actually vote for what we want. And these are the three options I propose to you. And of course, we liked that. So in terms of why she was beheaded, yes, she did support the constitutional monarchy. Yes, she was ferociously opposed to the beheading of the nobility. And she talked about, you know, the, the revolution being soiled by the blood of the people who were being executed, um, because there were an awful lot of executions as well that did occur um, that we were beginning around the time that she was executed. And we've all heard about the terror, yes. And even though the Jacobin declaration and the Jacobin ideas that sort of informed Robespierre's regime were some of the most radical of the revolution, the, the, the revolution sort of became Stalinism avant l'heure. Huh? It sort of became quite an authoritarian regime afterwards, which was a bit of a shame because the ideas were very radical. But um, what, yeah, anyway, I mean, added so, to that, she uh, was very worried about. She, so she wrote out saying that she did not agree with the women's violence in the revolution or any of the violence, and she thought that uh, rather than killing the aristocracy, they should possibly be exiled. Um, and then that was it. Was so she was anti-violence, which is again interesting that she wasn't. That she was sort of saying, let's moderate this. Uh, the terror and that was thought to be counter-revolutionary because it was thought to be undermining the um the revolution and that's what they they got her for they said that this is uh unacceptable and we're going to execute you for that yeah but she was hated anyway because she you know she was she was blamed for causing the up uprising in Haiti which started in 1791 I think it was and the revolution went on to you know early into the 19th century when Haiti became independent and had to pay, um, pay damages to France for the privilege. But, um, you know, and it was a very, it was a, it was a horrible time, the Haitian revolution, you know, lots of, you know, oh, I, I won't go into that, it's a whole other story. But, um, but she was blamed and anti-slavery activists were blamed. I think it was actually the slaves uprising in Haiti that caused the revolution. And, you know, sort of saying that some white, <laughs> some white people in France caused the Haitian slaves to rise up is sort of a complete misunderstanding of, you know, what, what causes people to rise up. But anyway, she got blamed for all sorts of nasties, yeah? She got blamed for that. She, you know, was, was you know, executed as a monarchist and so on, but they really hated her ideas about women's rights as well. So I think they would have got her one way or the other. Yeah, they also really quite sort of um, criticised her for being a prostitute or being a kept woman um, and uh, being rude and being uneducated and not writing, typing out or writing out her own stuff, even though all the men, all the male writers didn't write their stuff. They all had secretaries. Um, and so they, they attacked her on all, a load of different issues. secretary too. She, she got people to write for her. Yeah, yeah. She, she got young men to write for her. So, yeah. you know, that, that's common. 
people have yeah. money, got people to be scribes for them. Yeah. But um, but yeah, but she 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 lived with her, you know. I mean, divorce was legalized in France quite early during the revolutionary decade, it was legalized, so you know, and and homosexuality, you know, um prohibitions on homosexuality were removed also during that decade. But so there were some pretty radical things that happened, you know, that weren't women doing them, but um, but still there was a big stigma, particularly on women who lived out of wedlock. And of course, yes, she was literally kept by her by her lover. He paid her bills. He kept her in her house and so on. Yeah. So she go and do the thing she did. Yeah. And she, uh, a, a thing that I think I, I like about her is that she uh, sent money to her mother. Um, yes. So her father, her stepfather died and her mother sort of was reasonably poor. And um, Olamp made sure that she sent money to her mother and looked after her for the for the whole of her mother's well until she herself died. She also had a son, and at the time, yes. most aristocratic women. This is a lamp she was sort of middle class, but quite upper middle class, and and sort of then started hanging out in quite elite circles. Most people um, sent their children off to the countryside and they had a reasonably bad education and they didn't really look after them that well. That's what, you know, the, uh, the stuff I've read says. Whereas they, she was very, very careful to bring up her son with the best education possible. And he uh, was a very good actor and he was in some of her plays. So she was very close to him and he stuck with her for most of her life and really appreciated this fantastic uh, upbringing until right at the end when uh, the revolutionaries turned against her uh, he betrayed her no, and and he wrote no, against her and said I think she's te really terrible and uh, I renounce her as my mother he, so he saved his skin he saved his skin yes yeah that's yeah yeah he saved it's his skin so do you I'm I'm being um, anti him but do you think he just had to do that it was well, I, I, I think, you know, you can't sort of second guess what's happening and what's going on in people's minds. I mean, you, you when we were chatting about this over email, you asked me if she might have been a lesbian. Who knows? You know, who knows? There's so much we don't know about what goes on in people's lives and people's minds. And as far as relationships between women go, we know very well that we know don't know very much about them. Yeah. So I think it's unlikely, but, you know, anything's possible. Right. Um, but in terms of her son's motivations, it may have been like, you know, you want to live, this is what you do. Yeah. And he decided he wanted to live more than he wanted to defend his mother. Or it may have been that he found another way to sort of socially climb and he got sick of his mother's revolutionary dealings. Who knows? But yeah. the thing is, he actually ended up, you know, betraying her. She was, I mean, uh, she was really, really um, sort of, she, in French, they call her a jusco boutiste, like, which I guess you probably know a better translation, but right to the end, she went right to the end. And she, when she was, she, 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 when she was getting in a lot of trouble, um, uh, she went and lived in the countryside for a bit, and then she just couldn't stop herself. And she wrote this three urns. Uh, questioning what way forward for the revolution. And she went and posted it, sort of saying, oh, it's one last thing, I'm going to do it. But then it, it, friends of hers apparently said, look, you, you're just, they're just going to kill you. They're not going to accept you do, carrying on. You should just now be a bit quieter. She just refused to be shut up, which again is a really, you know, it's a, a, a very fantastic thing that we radical feminists or, um, we want to not be silenced. And she, even in prison, kept on writing. And um, and she just, she even from the scaffold, I think, did she, didn't she shout out something like, what has the revolution ever done for you, women? Um, a bit like the sort of Monty Python um, thing. But she, she carried on right to the end, sort of keeping her revolutionary ideas pure. And she's so confident, wasn't she, in herself? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think it's just, if you um, well confident in herself, I don't know, that's sort of, you know, getting into psychological things that we don't know about, but, you know, yeah. she clearly was outspoken right to the end. And, you know, if we look at what's changed history and what's actually caused um, things to shift in a way that's positive, it's, you know, 
It's slaves rising up and being killed by the colonialists. It's women going to prison and dying for their ideas. It's, you know, it's, it's people, you know, who are oppressed or who are downtrodden or who, who have insights about the rights of those people who are oppressed who speak and won't shut up. That changes things, you know, it's, and, and, and we should be grateful to women like Ogan de Gouge because she didn't shut up. And Christine de Pizon and a whole bunch of others before her who didn't shut up, yeah? Because um, that's the only thing that, and, and, and what, as feminists, we're constantly having to deal with, as Christine Delphi said once, uh, we're condemned to constantly repeat ourselves. And I think I probably said that in the last webinar I made, but it's a great line because we are condemned to keep having to repeat ourselves because we do get hidden from history. We do get forgotten. The insights we've brought, the rights we've gained get forgotten. And we're battling with that right now. Yeah? Right now, all the women's rights that we have fought so hard for, just when we were starting to get a little bit of oxygen, a little bit of air, a little bit of safety, a little bit of maneuvering room, what happens? All those rights suddenly get eroded. By this bullshit gender identity stuff. So, you know, it's and, and, and by other sorts of, you know, reactionary moves and you know, anti-feminist moves, it's not just the transgender stuff, it's also the religious right, it's a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, but so so it's this is constant battle. And another uh, uh, a close friend of mine said um once that we're not battling for things to get better, we're battling so they don't get worse. And sometimes it can feel like that, you're battling so they don't get worse. I think thanks to women like Olam de Gouge, however, they did start to get better, but you know, it took a while in France, it took a long while. I and, think, and yeah. Was precocious. I think I, agree. I totally agree with that. And I, I think that a great thing about Olam de Gouge, and I really oh. recommend everybody to listen to more about her, read it. And you, we, I think we can, we should use her and celebrate her and know her story. Um, and uh, sort of um, mention her when we're, you, we're talking about feminism because she had such great politics and it, it, I, particularly on the anti-slavery stuff uh, uh, was was amazing, but the anti-poverty stuff, oh, and also the animals. She was really good on animal rights. She had loads of animals and she sort of had a very progressive understanding that animals had uh, consciousness and shouldn't be harmed and you could have relationships with them they were sort of you know n not just beasts that should be used so there's that there's that there's probably loads of extra stuff but so that's I really recommend everybody do that and I I want to say uh, thank you so much to Bronwyn on behalf of everybody who's here at Radical Feminist Perspectives so we've we've had 110 women here it's a women only webinar so we've, uh listening to this and then it, it will go on youtube later but um bronwyn's an expert in in french literature and french history and philosophy uh, and feminism just with the literature stuff i'm not a literature scholar yeah i have okay. read french literature there's tons of french literature i haven't read but i'm actually more of a political science social sciences scholar um okay. so Literature, yes, I've read it, but that's not my scholarly specialization. So I just wanted to, you know, catch you up on that one. Well, thank you so much, Ronan, because it's just unbelievably interesting and it's opening up um, by you participating in radical feminist perspectives, um, this expertise and this completely rich area of uh, political feminist political thought. Um, that we hope in the next year to, or in long, long time, to to really discuss some of these uh, great women that we, the Anglosphere has not really uh, sort of thought about. So it's brilliant. I, I echo that, Joe. I want to hear about women in Latin America. I want to hear about women in China. I want to hear about women in Eastern Europe. I want to hear about women also in other Western European countries. But I really want to, I, I think as radical feminists, we really, you know, our, our movement is global and there are so many wonderful ideas and so many courageous women who are, are working and have worked in various parts of the world. And I'd really like to hear more about some of them. So, and, and, and a, lot, a lot of them I don't know about either. So, you know, it would be great to, to hear more of these stories, you know, not just about France, but about all sorts of places. So thank you for the invitation. Brilliant. And thank you on behalf of everybody. It's And thanks everybody for being here. Um, next week, I'll just get up to tell you what we're going to do next week. Next week, we have, I'll get this 
Um, next week, we have Sheila Jeffries and Dorothea Anison discussing Against Our Will by Susan Brownmiller. And I think it's an article, but it's called Mass Rape. Oh, no, it's maybe a book called Mass Rape, edited by Steigelmeyer. We'll send out an invitation uh, via email so you, you get the full details of that. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here. And uh, there's a breakout room, women only, you can go to. And uh, thank you so much again, Bronwyn. And we look forward to having you again very soon and continuing this. So bye, everybody.